0: like I, hold your head up high, till you find the blue bird of happiness, you will find greater peace of mind, knowing there's a blue bird of happiness, Welcome back to the Philip K. Dick Book Club. In this episode, we'll be jumping into part three of my review of Now Wait for Last Year. And this will cover chapters eight through 12. A lot of interesting stuff happens in this part of the novel. The first half of the novel is mostly just set up. Uh, Mostly it revolves three themes. One is the the overall geopolitical situation, the rigs and the, the lily star, the starmen, from Lilystar and war with one another, a big cosmic war involving millions of, of, of people, uh, really a war to the death, to the end, uh, for both of those species. Humans have been brought into this war through an alliance with the Starmen. And the Starmen, though, are a fascistic organization with a secret police that re- re- try to remain a firm control over over Earth. And Earth is then tied to what's essentially a losing war. So that's, that's one part of the story. The other part of the story involves Eric Sweetsent, Uh, a doctor who specializes in Artiforg replacement, basically keeping old people alive through replacement organs. And he has just been recruited to work for the UN to help keep the UN Secretary General Gino Molinari alive. He is very sick, the UN Secretary General. Uh, He has had cancer many times, he's got hypertension, he's over weight he's, he's fly he, he, he doesn't keep himself well groomed he's just sort of disgusting and he's a mess and he's constantly sick and you get this sense that his job is basically to prop up this this dying person now later on we're going to get some interesting kind of especially in this part of the story you get this FDR kind of imagery where Gino Molnar will be in this wheelchair and he's got this um, you know the blanket over his over his legs kind of like the imagery of of fdr when he was traveling you know around in his wheelchair but he's he's get, he's trying to figure out what's actually wrong with this man how could someone be as sick as he is and he starts to think that these illnesses that he has are empathic and that he's actually taken on the illnesses of the people in him and we learn as we go through the novel that molinari is actually someone who very much cares about Parents. He's doing what he can to help them. Every, everything he does is about minimizing the damage to Terra, in the in the context of this war, and to ensure that the Starmen don't destroy Earth, along with along with um, their own don't plan the war effort. You know, sometimes when I when I read this, I thought of Star Trek Deep Space Nine around the situation of the Cardassians at the end of that that war, where they're basically a puppet state, a satellite state of the Dominion. And they end up taking the brunt of the war because they're on their front lines, you know, and there's characters then who who make decisions to try to save as many Cardassian lives in the context of of, of being in the, you know joining up with the wrong ally essentially. So that's that's where Eric is, and he's mostly at this point just trying to figure out what Gino's, you know, the moles, that's what he's called, the moles problem is. Then we have Eric's wife, Kathy Sweetson. Now, this is a marriage that's broken, that's shattered, so we can kind of look at them as separate storylines. Now, they do meet from time to time, but their meetings are always confrontational and emotional. They seem to very much at the same time have deep hatred for one another and deep love for for one another. She has taken this new drug called JJ-180, which apparently was given to her through Starman agents who wanted her addicted. It's a very special drug because after one use of it, you get addicted for life. And this is a fatal addiction that if you don't satisfy it, you will die. So when she finds out about this in desperation, she goes back. She goes to the Starman for, you know, for more drugs. And she tells them that she'll help them help. She'll infiltrate Cheyenne infiltrate the UN government spy on her husband and help them out in their kind of secret police activities in exchange for the drug. And she goes. Get, does that out of desperation. Not really a full betrayal, but she's just driven to it by, by the threat of death, the, the, the fear that she'll die soon. Now, as at the midway point in the novel where we, where, where we stopped last time, she had taken the drug again. And this time she's more conscious of the fact that this drug induces time travel. And she has gone to basically the 1930s. In a robotic cab so she's in with this in the back in time with this futuristic technology in the 1930s and Chapter 8 picks up with her adventures in in the past So Kathy when she realizes she's in the past and this is how chapter 8 begins she's realized because she sees like model Model T's or you know four old Ford cars and things from the 30s and she she realizes that Virgil Ackerman is still alive at this point, right? Because he's been kept alive for so long. So she she talks to the cab who's in trouble, actually. The cab has, you know, didn't fuel up before he went back in time. He didn't know he was going back in time. He didn't fuel up and he can't run on gasoline. So, he, you know, he's actually sort of going to be left behind in the past, it seems. And, you know, because Kathy will go back in time. I don't, I don't know if the cab goes back in time. I, I do think this robot got stuck back in time, actually, but... She does have this idea that she can contact Virgil and tell him about something that will make him rich. And this way she'll be able to be independently wealthy and free herself from a dependence on, on Eric. So she, she has this scheme to to send the fuel, which only exists in the future, to Virgil Ackerman, so he can process it and study it and then become rich off that. And she signs like a letter that she writes to him with, no, without postage. But without a return address, so it'll have to be sent C O D to Virgil. She sends it to him and she signs it like Kathy's Sweet son. She thinks, ah, this will free, free me from Eric. But then after, then she realizes that you know she'll still need the name Sweetsent or Virgil will never know it's her. And so she's gonna end up having to marry Eric anyways. So um, now, none of this really matters because what really happens when you go back in time with this drug is you're there while the drug is acting, and then when the drug wears out you go back to your normal time it's not like you know it's it's not like she has to like she's not necessarily changing the future her own timeline when she uses this drug she's just kind of visiting the past and it seems it's more like um, an observer of the past rather than actually someone who can affect it very much so that's that's kathy in the past next i think the next time we see her she's she's back in our time meeting up with eric so Eric, meanwhile, is still talking to the people around, kind of in the medical staff of, of the UN Secretary General. In this, case, in this case, it's Don Festenberg, who has a lot of interesting things to share with Eric. In fact, he shows them around a little bit, and they talk about the situation with Little and the, like the 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 way that Gino Molinari presents earth, And presents himself as weak, as feeble, is all part of a strategy to do that. To, there's a tactic in appearing weak. And this is what he says uh, Quote, Well, it's an interesting idea from the Ivory tower, tower intellectual standpoint, don't you agree? It could be, and until you actually subject Gino to an intensive physical examination, you wouldn't know because everything in that file you read could all be faked. You think I'm out of my mind, I'm just playing like a schizoid with ideas for the fun of it. Maybe you regard without regard to their actual consequences, maybe so. You can't prove what I just now told you was untrue, so as long as it remains the case. Of quote. And what he's talking about here is the possibility that maybe the strong, vibrant Molinari that we see on the TV screen is is the real one and that the sick, dying one that they see is a robot. And it's all about your audience, right? So towards your people, you want to show strength. Towards your enemy, or towards your ally, you show weakness, so they'll, not suspect you as a threat to them right that he won't betray them you show yourself as passive and subservient or unable to act when in fact you can and you use a robot for one display and you use a human for another you use a robot for both for, for that, that 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 matter but it's all about the strategy of appearing weak and the deeper issue here of course is Dick's fascination with the nature of political reality and the nature, the, na- the, the reality of politics beyond this, the surface. In his later novels, this will be the concept of the Black Iron Prison, the idea that we're, we're sort of, you'll sometimes say we're still in the Roman Empire, right? That behind the facade of democracy and people's government or whatever is essentially just dictatorship and power. Right? That's at the heart of Dick's entire political perspective, that what you see on the surface is never going to be the reality Right? It's not that there isn't a reality behind it. It's just that reality is quite brutal. It might be vapid, too, like a robot, right? but it might be a monster. There, there's a, there's a different examples in his works of what the reality behind that facade is. But the fact is the face of political power is never what's there beyond it. And an often, way he, one way he does this often is just by making the leader a robot. The doctor then takes Eric to a room where there's a dead body uh, preserved of, of Geno Molinari. And it's a, it's a real physical Geno Molinari. It's, it could be a robot, but it's not. I don't know why they can't just test if it is. Like, I don't know if it's like these Blade Runner kind of replicants where you can't really tell just by looking at them physically if they're robots or not. But, but there's this dead body of Geno Molinari all shot up. Right throughout his body, a bunch of like he's been assassinated, and where did he come from, and why is he there? Is the question, and you know, did Gino get him from a different timeline through time travel and bring him, bring this body back? Is it his own future, or is it a different parallel future? It's not clear, and or is it just a robot? Is it just another version of Gino that he can put out if necessary to fool the Starman or to achieve some other political goal? Right, so the face of political power can adapt to, to its use and I, I think that's why Gino Molinari is such a fascinating part of, of Philip Dick's entire kind of perspective of political power. So most of this chapter, at least after we do done with the Kathy stuff, is all really about the nature of, of Gino Molinari and kind of his fluid nature, how he has these different masks that he wears. And it's all part of it, but he but he's got a his overall political goal is the salvation of, of Terra. And that's something everyone around him agrees upon. There's no one that we run into that thinks that the mole is like a malevolent force. Everyone realizes that he's got the best interests of Terra at heart. It just is acting in these strange ways for some reason that's not entirely clear. We get part of the answer in chapter nine, which is a it's really kind of a fun chapter. It's it's one of the funniest in the entire book, and, and actually one of the funnier scenes, uh, set pieces in, in all of Philip Dick's writings, I think. And he, basically, Molinari has gone with Eric to a a conference with the, with the Starmen. It's an important military conference, right? That's it's, it's like a meeting of allies in which they're going to agree on a strategy to fight the war. So it's really a high ranking, important um, meeting and the per- main person that comes the representative of the starman is this cuz I can't say this man but this starman Fr- um frenesky. frenesky that's his name and there's also the, the whole star delegation lily star delegation is is there now F- Frensky is very much a bureaucratic personality and, and Dick has a whole little dissertation on his character and how he can could you know he was independent, so he's up uh, but he he had this kind of projected this kind of power that made everyone around them feel isolated and vulnerable. That's how it's described. Um Quote, Frensky was not a bureaucrat and he did not, could not, even if he tried, subordinate himself to his office. Frensky remained a man in that bad sense. He retained in the midst of his busy activity of official contact the essence of a purely personal, as if to him everything was deliberate and intentional, a contrast between people, not one between abstract or ideal issues. What Minister Frensky does, Eric realizes, is to deprive all the others of the sanctity of their office, of the security produced in reality of their titled positions, end quote. Now Dick here says this is not bureaucratic, but actually when I read that I think of bureaucracy all the time because isn't that what a bureaucracy does when you go to a even if you go to a minor office like you go to the um you go to the DMV right and you're waiting this line no but to, no matter your status no matter your, who you are or how educated you are you are made to feel dumb right you can't fill out the paperwork right I, in China I experience this all the time because on top of that I got language issues that I have to struggle through but you know the even if, it, if I could read 100% uh, the words on there I'm sure that that form would be you know like almost like a different language to me it's it's bureaucrat language right and it really disempowers you makes you feel really alone and isolated and dependent on that person so even though dick here says that he's this is much more his personal and power that does that it's it's also something bureaucracies do very well and I, it's it's an aspect I think of the bureaucratic mentality or just the technology of bureaucracy and how it functions and controlling us. So as soon as the meeting starts to begin, Molinari would always kind of inch over to Eric and and whisper to him like, I'm having extreme hypertension and I'm going blind and I have headaches. And he keeps rattling off these symptoms in the middle while Ferenczi is talking about these really important things about the war effort. And so what he wants, what Ferenczi wants is is Gino Molinari to agree to a plan because humans Terrans are being slaughtered in the war and they stink at fighting apparently Uh, and what the Starmen want to do is draft like a million of their men put them into uniform and bring put them to the front line as a last-ditch effort to to win the war but then they're going to need people to run the factories back on Lilystar so they want to draft a million humans and ship them over to Lilystar to work in these factories where they'll probably end up being killed that's the subtext here they, they're said they're safe but you know it's basically going to be a one-way ticket for them so Gino Molinari while he's, they're having this he's the starmen are trying to get his approval he's going through increasingly intense symptoms of, of of chronic extreme hypertension he's basically like you know the blood to his kidneys have been shutting down and you know his veins are all constricting you know he starts to go blind and he you know, they actually, Eric Strusser like, has to operate on him right there during the conference. It's all really uh, portrayed in such a hilarious way, though, even though it's kind of horrific. And at one point, Gino Molinari actually dies in the middle of the conference. And later we learn that this is not the first time this has happened. This is a common strategy for him. So he does, can avoid having to sign any official document that will commit Terran forces or Terran lives to the Lily Star war effort. Basically, it's, it's a stalling tactic that Gino Molinari engages in by, you know, getting sick and almost dying at meetings. And Eric's job is to basically keep him just alive enough that he doesn't have to actually do his job as U.N. Secretary General and as the inferior ally of the Starmen, but, you know, but still be alive and still still continue on this this. Ploy. Now, of course, the lily star men would love it if Gino Mullen only just died and they could replace them with someone more pliant. And, and then we see here part of the use of all this illness, right? It's really about a false front. It's, it's partially about hiding who you really are and your real intentions, showing oneself as bizarre and goofy and a bit weird when, when there's something much more insidious below the surface such a much more manipulative, I guess insidious is the the wrong word because Molinari is essentially an ethical figure, even though he's willing to use violence and execute people and stuff like that. His his ultimate goal is the survival of humanity. And he feels that's on his shoulders and he has to do what he can. But it's there's a strength behind the, the, the apparent weakness. Right now, the Starmen come out of this thinking that Molinari is just a fool and sick and he's let his health go and he's not a very useful ally but he's actually saving Terran lives. And in this case, it works because they have to end the conference. The Starmen have to get back to, to Lilystar, so they leave and it's gonna be weeks before they have another meeting to make these demands. And the headlines in the news say that, you know, Molinari almost died during this meeting, but uh, what's the headline? Policy, quote, policy meet called off abruptly due to Secretary's illness. Star delegation headed by Frensky in seclusion. So it's, it's a success. Um, so that's that's all of Chapter 9. It's really a fun read. It's, it's, and it's right in the center of the novel. Kind of a, a highlight set piece of the story. Chapter 10. So Eric comes back and sees his wife, Kathy, is there. And... To cut right to it she talks to him pretty straightforward about what she's facing about the fact that she's addicted to jj 180 that she needs more of it that this addiction is is potentially fatal and she starts begging for eric's help and begging for his his support and her effort to cure herself of this illness use his connections because maybe there's a Uh, Maybe there's a supply that she can use or maybe there's an antidote out there somewhere that he can get a hold of But she's forcing him to act and when he kind of hesitates to help her You know it shows you the depth of their their hatred for each other at times that he's thinking He actually thinks about just letting her die of this illness at various times in the story But while he goes off like to, to the bathroom or something she puts the drug into his coffee and addicts him, addicts, and so when he drinks the coffee, he's now addicted to JJ-180 as well. And then he does time travel, pretty much right after he gets exposed to this drug, he, he goes on a little journey. He, he goes one year into the future, and this is a big difference between him and Kathy. Kathy is a nostalgic personality type, I guess, the one who wants to go into the past. Eric's one who wants to go in the future. Most people go to the past. Most people who use the drug go to the past. And I think Dick here is suggesting that most people have that. That not kind of tendency for nostalgia and, and not the future. That might be true, true generally. I think people think more about the past than they do the, the future. And I think that's part of the danger of this, this fascination with the 80s or this fascination with the previous time or whether it's the 19th century, 18th century. I mean, even Dick had this. Dick himself. Well, had this this love for the early modern, right, that he, he sort of wanted to get back to. Despite writing science fiction, he he had a real, he was drawn by the early early modern. It's music, it's it's kind of pastoral, the pastoral scenes of, of that. So what, is, what happens to him in the future, though? Well, basically he meets uh, Festenberg, who has basically he's been planning, now Gio Molinari is still in charge one year in the future, and he says, I have, the, I have the cure for this, so you can take the cure and maybe even take it back and cure your wife to do that. Um, and he says, well, I can just take the drug again and, and, and get it at some point in the future and also go farther in the future and find out how to win the war. And Festenberg warns him that if you go too far in the future, it may not be useful because maybe Earth will be destroyed and the war will be over and it will, it will be lost and maybe you can't get a cure at that point. So it's not easy to control this time travel. It's kind of fairly liquid. It does seem though that the longer you take it or the more you take, the more you can move in, in one direction or, or another. And he's, Festenberg is also part of a plot to overthrow Molinari. And Festenberg you know, has him look outside the window and to see total ruins there. So the war in the, in the next year, the war has come to earth and in, in some way and, and we're going to learn later on that essentially what happened is Molinari was part of a rebellion against the Starmen who tries to make an alliance with the the Reegs and the Starmen occupy Earth and, and destroy it and engage in war against Cheyenne the holdouts of of the Moles um, faction and at least in one possible timeline and that's what the situation is going to be about a year from the the mainline events of, of the story so this was a very short period of time that he spent in the future, but he comes back and he he meets with Kathy. Now he's got a couple things on his mind when he comes back. One is there seems to be this political problem of Festenberg scheming to, to dethrone Molinari, and maybe he can do something about that. Maybe he can warn them or prepare them. He can't be taken by surprise so easily. The other concern he has, of course, is getting this antidote, uh, both for himself now and for Maybe, maybe his wife, but primarily for himself. And the first people he contacts is is the people at Tijuana Fernday, his his corporation, because the company that made this drug is is a subsidiary of of Tijuana Fernday, his old company. And so he calls Jonas Ackerman, the son of, of the you know the, of the owner, the boss of that company, and tells him basically, Kathy's addicted. Doesn't say he's addicted. Yet, but he says Kathy's addicted and needs the treatment, and you know he, you know he says I'll, I'll kind of do what I can to help. He, he when he gets back to his ConApp, though, he he runs into two people from basically the Drug Control Agency, the, the UN Narcotics Bureau. It's Hilda Bracchus and a Mr. Hazeltine. These are the two people who approach him, and instead of arresting Kathy and and, and Eric, they claim to want to help them and to, you know, they'll both, they have a desire to control this drug and to keep the drug from spreading too far and get getting too many people addicted, but they actually want to help the people who have faced the addiction. So actually, yeah, Tilda Back is from the UN Narcotics Bureau, but Mr. Hazeltine is from the, the company in Detroit that originally made it. And so we get a very interesting conversation about the purpose of this drug, why it was produced what it actually does, there's some debate about what it does, um, but its its purpose was essentially as a as a weapon of war. So the goal is to create a drug that's universally addictive, so then you could then impose it on a population. That would then be dependent on you, and if they didn't get the drug from you, they would die. So it'd be a way of winning the war against the reeks That's why it was originally invented. So what happened is they invented this now they didn't want it distributed until they could get an antidote prepared so they are going to prepare both at, at once but as soon as it was developed they gave a sample of it to the starmen and the starmen then used started using it for their own purposes to increase their control over earth and one of their things they did was infect well infect's the wrong word but uh, addict people like kathy sweet Sense to the to the drug so lily star has its own thing going on. I mean, they're they're obviously nefarious and malevolent towards, towards Terrans and don't respect them very much and see them just as bodies to be to be used to be thrown at the war effort. But unfortunately, they don't yet have have a cure. Lily Star is not keen on developing a cure. But the Riggs may have a cure. That's the theory that maybe the Riggs have found out about this drug and have developed a cure to protect themselves from the drug. So maybe there are ways of getting this cure, but it's not currently available now. The bad news is Kathy, SweetScent and Eric too, for that matter, can only stay alive probably for half a year or four or five months on the drug before their body just shuts down. So even if you get the drug every day, eventually you're gonna die of it. So that's, that's the bad news. Um, that they don't have much time to hope for a cure to be developed. Now, of course, we know that Eric has taken this drug and can use it to go to the future. So there's maybe a way of getting the cure um, from the future. But then they get into a debate about whether this time travel is even real or not. And, and Eric's, of course, spent some time in the future, and he assumes it's, it's a real future that he goes to. But Hazeltine doesn't think it's real. He thinks, essentially, this is just a hallucinogenic drug that although it is highly addictive... And will kill you it's not it's not really moving people in time it's essentially just just giving them the perception that they're outside of time right now I wondered if anyone who's ever taken a hallucinogenic drug has had that experience of going back in time or going forward in time I'm sure someone has that's that's what he thinks is going on with this drug That it's just a particular type of hallucinogen that deals with people's perception of, of time but Eric basically thinks he'd really move forward in time, right? But there's really hard. it's hard to confirm one way or another. So they give him a bunch of drugs. They give him enough drugs that he can take these two to the infirmary to give to Kathy, which will keep her alive for as long as she can stay alive while addicted to the drug. And that's, that's the end of Chapter 10. So Chapter 11 then deals mostly with... Uh, with eric's time traveling adventures his more dramatic one on his way there he runs into gino molinari who's in his his fdr outfit essentially where he's sitting in a wheelchair with the blanket over his his legs and molinari immediately you know is pissed off at him for you know having a wife who's addicted to jj 180 and he starts to actually threaten him and he says if you ever get involved with this stuff i'm gonna kill you and it turns out that the mole has had his apartment bugged and so he got that whole conversation with with hazeltine and the people from the u.n narcotics bureau so he knows all about that now it's highly suggested here that that molinari uses this drug himself and maybe he even has a cure which is why he can use it so much and this may explain some of his political machinations and, and his successes but his kind of molinari's brutality comes off here and he, he says like i do kill people is a part of maintaining my power and doing what needs to be done? And if I have to kill you, I will do it. As Eric tries to get out of this conversation, though, Molinari says, I also know that you are addicted. I can tell by looking at you. Which is another suggestion that Molinari knows what it's like to be addicted to JJ 180. It's kind of a comic scene where he starts to have health problems again just as Eric's leaving and he has to call his other doctor, T-Garden, to, to possibly save his life again. But but Eric doesn't participate in helping him this time. Eric goes goes straight to uh, Kathy, it seems. So he delivers the supply of the drug to Kathy and he's on his way to the Hazeltine Corporation by by taxi. It's a very parallel scene with, with Kathy, who was in a taxi and she takes the drug. Now it's Eric in the taxi taking the drug. And this time he's going to Detroit to the Hazeltine Corporation. And he takes the drug and arrives there at some point in the future. And it's a future in which there's a bunch of rigs on the planet and they're running offices. In fact, when he goes to the like the Hazeltine Corporation to inquire about an antidote to JJ 180, which is the purpose of him going in the future, the people at the desk are, are just these rigs and that immediately he thinks well we lost the war and we're occupied but it's not like a slave humans aren't in a slave situation of slaves they're not oppressed they can move around fairly freely they the the and the humans work together so it doesn't seem to be a situation of genocide or or slavery so it's not really clear what happened now obviously there's different timelines going on here and what this timeline shows and what it reveals to eric is that it's possible for the reeks and the humans to have allied, and have won and to win the war, and to have a fairly happy, prosperous future together, on Terra, interacting and, and cooperating. That it, that you don't have to ally with the people that look like you. That, that was the whole warning here: is if you ally with people who look like you, you may be getting into bed with the devil. You know that the reeks were actually the moral ones, although they look like monsters. So he basically goes to the front office, asks for, to talk to the chemist about the drug, and the chemist comes. And one funny thing here is the Riggs are very impatient. They're, they listen and they're very empathic. Everything is done through communicators and translators. But they, they're very impatient because their life cycle is very short. They don't live very long. So they're, they're, they want get, to get going on everything. But they eventually talk to the chemist and he asks for the antidote. And, Chemist is like, this is simple. You could have just asked for it at the counter. You don't need me for that. And he eventually gets the gets the the antidote. It's like costs like five bucks. He doesn't have five bucks, so at least not of currency that's used at the, in, you know after the war. And so he has to like sell his watch. And he does trade eventually trade his watch for that. And not only do they they trade the watch, but this will give him change for the watch. They give him like a hundred dollars extra to compensate him for his watch. It's, it just again shows you that these are the good guys. They're not trying to take advantage of Eric at all. They're very honest and straightforward. Um, he learns more when he talks to a human. The human he talks to, what's his name? I guess he was called the man, I don't know. I, oh, Taubman, I guess that's the name Tobman. He eventually does get his name. So he talks to Taubman. And he gets the story from him that in this timeline, humans had never allied with Lilystar. It had always been an alliance with the Riggs, and the war was easily won without that much suffering by, by Terra. Another person, though, shows up, and it's not, not really a person. It's, quote, an organism without eyes entirely, he thought, seeing it, a fruit... He had come into a, onto as a child overripe pears lined in weedy grass covered by a crawling layer of yellow jackets attracted to the sweet odor of rot. The creature was vaguely spherical. It had fitted itself into a harness, however, which had squeezed its soft body tortuously. No doubt it needed this in order to get around in the Terran environment. Now this is a creature called Willie K. from Beetlejuice, another alien immigrant. It's a very cosmopolitan earth we live in now, in the 10 years in the future in this different timeline. He's one of the best chemists in this corporation at the time. He's also a psychic, so he can read read his minds, And he instantly knows everything about Eric. He knows Eric's a time traveler. He knows Eric's from a different timeline altogether. He knows about his marriage problems. He even gives marriage advice, saying, in marriage, the greatest possible hatred that is possible between human beings can be generated, perhaps because of the constant proximity, perhaps because once they were in love. The intimacy is still there even though the love element has disappeared. So will to power, a struggle for domination comes into being. It was his wife, Kathy, who addicted him in the first place so it's easy to understand his sentiments. So they they just talk about um, relationships a bit and they also talk about maybe you can convince your Molinari, your version of Molinari. Their version was assassinated. Assassinated by being shot in the face. So he's not. that's not where the body... That we saw earlier came from. It didn't come from this timeline. Maybe a different one. But their Molinari was assassinated by nativists who didn't want any immigrants. Didn't want the Reeks on Earth at all. But their Molinari, you know, had a completely different history, you know. And he says, like, there's possible for for working with the Reeks. So just tell him that. Tell him an alliance with the Reeks is possible, and you can maybe save Earth and get out of this war. So that is, they talk about that and they also, Eric also memorizes the formula for the antidote. So he can, if he wants, cure um, Kathy in another time. He, of course, gets the antidote, takes it, and he's cured of, of, his, of, of the addiction. His, he's eventually, he, the, the drug though fades out and he goes back to his time. He assumes he goes back to his time, but in fact, he goes to one year in the future. So he doesn't go all the way back to his, the main timeline. It goes just one year into the future. And this world is a disaster. Um, Gino Molinari at some point had, in fact, tried to make an alliance with the, the Reeks, And for this, Earth was occupied by the Starmen. They imposed a military state, a total basically enslaving the Terran population. Humans can't even move around without passes. They're totally controlled. The only kind of base of resistance is still in Cheyenne, where Gino Molinari is holding out with a handful of, of loyalists. So this is, the, this is the world he goes back to. He doesn't go all the way back to his own time. And that's uh, where we leave off at the end of Chapter 11. Um, so that's it. That takes us to the climax of the novel, which we'll talk about in the next, in the next episode. I guess it's a fairly plot heavy um part um but you know we we've learned more about jj 180 we learn about how it's used we we learn that there is an antidote that can be used and eric in fact is able to free himself from his addiction through that um we learn that there's different possible futures and i think that's the most important lesson of this part of the story is that we're not bound. And it's highly suggested that Gino Molinari is using JJ one eighty to keep track of different possible futures. So he knows as well as any as Eric now knows that an alliance with the Riggs is not only possible but but preferable. And that the war can be can be stopped or the different future was possible. And and that he may that Gino Molinari may even have a an antidote that, that he can use to that's why he can keep using the drug. So we learn a lot about it, but we're in a very unstable situation when this section ends because we're, we're in the wrong time and we're in a time when things are really bad for our characters, particularly Gino and Eric, who is stuck in a place without a past that he needs to even move around. So I guess that's it. Um, I'll In the next episode, I'll finish up what happens in the novel, and then I'll give you my final thoughts about Now Wait for Last Year. Again, one of my favorite Philip Dick novels, one of the ones I have the most fun coming back to and reading. So I, I really do recommend it. If you've read this novel and you have your own thoughts about this part of the story, what do you think of this of the hilarious scene at the at the conference where Gino Molinari dies to avoid having to make an important political decision? What do you think about the way political power is presented in this novel and how it connects to maybe other, other Philip Dick stories? Or is there any other theme that you think is interesting here that you would like to talk about that maybe I didn't bring up? So just send me an email at 100pagescast at gmail.com. As always, thanks for listening. I'll see you next time with my conclusion of my thoughts on now for last year. The bluebird, you will find peace and contentment forever if you